Greetings from St. Louis, Missouri. My name is Clagert Mitchell, and I serve as a lead pastor here at South County Bible Church. I'm very excited to be a part of the 2020 IFCA International Virtual Convention. Just like all of you, the hardest part of this is not having the opportunity to mingle in the hallways while enjoying good coffee and and fellowship together. And yet, what an incredible opportunity we have as a fellowship to set aside this time uh, to recalibrate our thoughts and center our focus on Christ. Back at the beginning of 2020, I issued a very specific challenge to our historic IFCA church here in South County. This church was started by Obi Bodarf, a businessman from here in the St. Louis area and personal friend of Billy McCarroll. Mr. Bodarf was not only a charter member of IFCA, he also served as the very first president from 1930 to 1932, as well as editor of the Voice magazine from 1930 to 1953. Our church has experienced a lot in its 101-year history. Wonderful seasons when lots of people were coming to Christ. And then some seasons that were harder to navigate, much more difficult to endure. I suppose, like many of our churches, we can easily get comfortable delighting in yesterday's grace or even wallowing in yesterday's pain. My challenge to our church just six months ago, was to keep looking up, to realize our best days really are ahead of us. Well, now here we are halfway through 2020, and so far we've survived quarantine, COVID-19, the Tiger King, which I did not watch, by the way, riots, looting, and more conspiracy theories than I can count. And if that's not enough, we're now staring down the barrel of a presidential election, Well, specifically, my challenge to my church was to not get caught up in any kind of good old days mentality. In ministry, the message that our best days are behind us is a toxic message that can totally kill momentum and actually crush people along the way. Don't allow those kind of attitudes, don't allow the good old days mindset to become a spiritual problem in present day. The kind of problem that unintentionally communicates to people that God doesn't work here anymore. The kind of problem that says to young people, well, you really don't matter because you don't do things the way that that we used to do them. Or the kind of problem that signals to newer families that, you know, things were better before you got here. Of course, It's appropriate for us to recall what God has done in the past. Scripture tells us to remember those things and pass on the testimonies of God's goodness and grace to the next generation. But looking back is problematic when people become so nostalgic for the past that we stop believing God for even greater things in the present. Instead of straining towards what is ahead, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, we start complaining about where where God is is leading. Whether the conversation is about music or clothes or service styles or individual church leaders or or even uh, the physical location of the church versus this whole new virtual reality of, of church online, the toxic message is always the same. The best days are behind us. 
And for the church, that's simply not true. No matter what's going on in the present, heaven is still ahead of us. So our best days are always ahead. Solomon, in his wisdom from the Lord, addressed that exact issue in Ecclesiastes 7.10 when he said, Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to, to ask such questions. Isaiah addressed this with Israel, saying, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19. Well, I challenged our people to pray knowing full well that God is still using His church today. He is still working to accomplish His purposes in our time. The truth of it is, the five words that change the course of history are still in effect today. Jesus said, I will build my church. This is still true in a pandemic. It's still true during a political firestorm. It is still true even when the news media has gone mad. It's still true in the year 2020. The thing is, not only have the last few months changed everything, our American society has not yet settled on what the new normal is going to be. So things are still changing which means we are being forced. And I, I suggest to you, God is in control and in His providence, forcing us to change things is, is a good thing. We are forced to ask some important questions though. What is our foundation? Where do we go for sure footing? Is it possible for us to have uh, joy in Jesus even in the midst of all of these things today? How are we to navigate these strange waters, leading our, our churches forward, especially when people are so tempted toward divisiveness over everything? Well, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, specifically chapter 2, because the answer is hidden in plain sight. You can have times when you feel overwhelmed, stressed out, afraid, broken, grieving, angry, confused, even longing a little bit for the good old days. There's something that I say to, to people all the time. I've been saying it for a long time. We need to remind our emotions of what we know is true. What we know is true about God, about our Savior, about our great salvation, about heaven, about forgiveness, about the future, about who is really in control, even about the foundation and the sure footing for the church in our time. On the day of Pentecost, it was Peter who stood in the midst of the people and basically preached the, the first sermon of Christianity. Peter had one theme, one dialed in purpose to proclaim the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. And friends, when the gospel is preached, because it is a supernatural message, it is the truth that actually changes lives. In fact, if we don't preach the gospel, we really don't have anything to say of any lasting value. Peter has just preached this incredible, grace-infused, Christ-exalting sermon. The Spirit of God is obviously at work because 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Well, we need to remember not only that the Lord is building His church, but that He builds it by His Word. Listen, He spoke creation into existence in Genesis, and He still speaks 
new creation, new life into existence through His forever settled in heaven word. That is God's plan. And if your concept for church growth and church health involves anything that replaces the regular systematic expositional preaching of Scripture, well, your church's best days might very well be behind them. Why do I say that? Because churches do not thrive on topical studies and carefully packaged devotionals. I bring us to Acts chapter 2. Often neglected in plain sight is the truth that every generation of the church desperately needs. We certainly need it for today. See, the church is Jesus' plan, and Jesus has a plan for his church. We know Christianity is personal, but it is not individualistic. Christianity is not man-centered. It's not me-centered. It is family-centered. It's corporate. It's together. It's one another. So yes, Jesus saves individual people, but he does not save them to live on an island all alone. The fact is, all of the New Testament epistles were written to churches or in reference to, to the church, the people together, life on life, discipleship, accountability, encouragement, support, strength, training, all happening in community. Here in Acts chapter 2, at the inception of the church, Luke tells us exactly what the fundamental priorities of the church are. And I want to remind you, I want to stir you up regarding arguably the top three priorities for the good of the local church. In Acts chapter 2, look at verses 42 and 43. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The very first thing on the list is our first key point. These folks were devoted to doctrine. The verse begins, verse 42 begins, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the thing is, the apostles were always teaching, and they were always teaching Bible doctrine. Because that's the foundation for everything else. Friends, their teaching ministry brought life to the lost. And it infused power to the church. I like the way Steve Lawson puts it. He says, precept comes before practice, doctrine before duty, and exposition before experience. In fact, our experiences are to be tested by doctrine. Not our doctrine by experiences. My mentor, Pastor Mike Shea, uh, has, says all the time, if your experience does not line up with Scripture, reject the experience. The early church was not some kind of emotional or mystical experience where people surrender their ability to think and just sit around looking for some big magical signs and wonders and, and all of that. No, it, it, is, it is so important for us to recognize that, that this early Spirit-filled congregation did not abandon the Word of God because the Holy Spirit was at work. The fact is, the Holy Spirit was powerfully, in amazing ways, working mightily in the early church because of the teaching of the Word of God. Friends, I urge you to remember, He, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of truth. 
So, biblical theology through sound doctrine is what fed and fueled every part of the church's life. The believer who is walking in the fullness of the Spirit is drawn to the Bible. He doesn't discard the Bible. In fact, all true spiritual awakenings involve the true uh, the truth of the Scriptures. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. That's referring to this, this uh, wooden platform that he was standing on. It says, and, he, and as he opened it, referring to God's law, God's word, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Later in Acts, you read on through, you find the Apostle Paul repeatedly declaring the gospel and teaching from the Word of God. Chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 20. Over and over and over, Paul is preaching and teaching the gospel and and the text of Scripture. He'd go on to exhort both Titus and Timothy to teach sound doctrine to churches because there's no substitute for it. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. He he commanded Timothy, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. As for you, he told Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, a healthy congregation is a congregation that has a regular healthy diet of sound doctrine. Reminds me of, of one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The church of Jesus Christ is to feast on the Word of God, and they are to be fed with the Word of God. This all makes for a great reminder to pastors and for churches of of just what the top priority is to be. Reminds me of of a statement that Warren Wearsby made uh, several years ago. He said, far too many churches, far too many of our sermons share the recipe or the menu, but not the meal. And our people go away hungry. See, We're not called to preach our opinions. We're not commissioned to proclaim our political passions. It's not our job to entertain emotions or satisfy people's sensitivities. God's Word itself is the very nutrition that believers need for health, for strength, for growth. The great uh, preacher Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the work of preaching is the highest and greatest and most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. Which means the preacher is God's spokesman. And our zeal in the pulpit should be spent seeking to please an audience of one. The sad truth is that far too many people in pulpits are neglecting the text and twisting the scriptures. It's like pastor and author David Helm once said, they use the Bible the way a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than for illumination. Let me say it like this, and and this is directed to my, my brothers in ministry, my fellow pastors. What God thinks about your sermon is far more important than what anybody else thinks about your sermon. 
as a pastor, I must believe and hold on to not just the inerrancy of Scripture, but also the sufficiency of Scripture. The Word of God is sufficient to answer every question, whether it's a question about marriage, parenting, life, or death. It is even sufficient to answer questions about government, politics, culture, race, religion, sexuality, or society. Friends, the Word of God is sufficient to equip our people, to build up the body, to strengthen and to bless the church in any context, in any location, at any time. And you know what? When that happens, when the pastor is faithful to preach and teach God's Word, the church then is to happily submit to the Scriptures, right? Doesn't always happen, but that is what is to happen. That's verse 42. Look at it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church demonstrates for every subsequent generation, even today, such an amazing humility before the Word of God. The Word of God gives us our rights. The Word of God gives us our authority. The Word of God gives us our message. The Word of God gives us our nutrition. The Word of God gives us our power. It gives us our authority. It's all about the Word of God proclaiming the Son of God to all of mankind. These folks in the early church were totally devoted to doctrine, which directly fueled their affection and devotion toward the Savior, toward one another, and even toward those outside who so desperately needed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they still do today. Verse 42 tells us, look at it, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Well, the early church, the believers were devoted to one another. They were stirring one another up to love and good works, which means that every single believer was an active participant in the work of the ministry. It also says they were devoted to the breaking of bread, the Lord's table, which portrays one of the most vivid reminders of our salvation and our shared new life in Christ that we have together. I believe it was uh, Erwin Lutzer who, who once said, as the apostles preached Christ to the ears of the people, so the Lord's table preached Christ to the eyes of the people. But then we come to the end of verse 42, and we find our second key point. Because the early church was also devoted to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Actually, Colossians 4 verse 2 says this explicitly. Devote yourselves to prayer. James Montgomery wrote, Prayer is the Christian's vital breath. It is the Christian's native air. In other words, those who love the Lord talk to the Lord. Actually, you could do a case study on vibrant prayer just from the book of Acts where the believers prayed together corporately. They, they prayed personally. They prayed without ceasing. They prayed in the temple, in homes, as they walked along the road. They prayed when they encountered the sick and the afflicted. They prayed before they preached sermons. They prayed when, before they listened to sermons. They prayed while being persecuted. They prayed during coordinated uh, prayer times over specific concerns. They thanked God for their food and they gave thanks to Jesus for their forgiveness. They prayed as as praise to God and they petitioned Him in an expression of their total dependence upon God. 
I say all of that just to make one simple point, and it's this. A healthy church is a praying church. A healthy church is a praying church. The early church didn't have smartphones, social media, instant access to a global audience. They did not have the kinds of high-tech tools that we have today and that we've been forced into using, and, and we, need to not, uh, we need to not be worried about that. We need to not let that go as, as uh, something that we're afraid of. We need to embrace it. And yet, not having any of those tools, it is the early church that turned the world upside down for Christ. How? By fully relying on their heavenly resources, on our heavenly resources. You know, during World War I, there was this new military invention called a land ship. Later, the Germans called it their, uh, they called theirs heavy tractors. We all know them today as tanks. They were first introduced at the Battle of Somme in September 1916. The campaign was, in many ways, not very successful, uh, even though it was reported successful in England. Uh, But a year later, on November 20th, 1917, at the Battle of Cambrai, uh, was the first large-scale use of tanks in a military offensive. And on the first day of the battle, the tanks were hugely successful. I mean, they cut a three-mile hole in the German front line. The problem was that the cavalry did not know about the success of the tanks until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And in November, the sun starts going down at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which means the cavalry could not come in and and, uh, back up and and clean out uh, the stuff that the tanks left behind and, and so on and so forth. This ultimately left those tanks exposed and vulnerable like a bunch of sitting ducks. And the German counterattack simply destroyed. Actually, they destroyed 179 tanks just using their artillery. Other tanks they captured and then pressed into service for the German army. Why was there such a collapse in the offensive after their, their massive success? Well, the problem had to do with their communication system. Do you know what they used for communication back then? carrier pigeons. Here's my point. There are simply way too many Christians today who access prayer like a carrier pigeon. They just scribble a few short statements on a piece of paper. They tie it to the leg of a pigeon and then release it towards the sky, hoping for help. I'm here to tell you that that is not what they were devoted to in the early church. Paul would describe believers in Romans 12.12 as rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. If you dig into the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17, where Jesus was teaching the disciples before going to the cross, after explaining that his ministry was nothing less than God the Father being revealed to man through God the Son, Jesus informed the disciples that they would participate in that very kind of ministry after his ascension. Basically, Jesus explained to them, hey, I am in you as you are in me, and, and, and you are going to have this incredible work of revealing Christ to the world. And that work is going to be done on earth through believers 
in answer to prayer that is in accordance with His will. John 14, verse 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What was the work? It was revealing God to man. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He goes on in chapter 15, in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The fact that Jesus has commissioned us gives us authority to ask for fruit. The fact that he has called us to his work gives us the right to pray for that work to be successful. And when we pray according to his will, for his success through our lives, guess what? He will answer. John 16, verse 23, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, joy in the Christian life is directly linked to the work of the Spirit in bearing fruit in our lives, in our ministries, in our communities. And it is all linked to the success of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prayer for the Christian walking in the Spirit, listen, it is a direct, instant, never on hold, open line of communication to the Father. You don't have to throw your bird towards the sky and hope you get some help. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.15 reminds us that there's a whole aspect of prayer that is all about our relationship to our Heavenly Father. When Paul says, pray without ceasing. To be honest, as a pastor, I have to guard against my prayer life becoming nothing more than soundbite prayers for parishioners or bedside eulogy for the sick. Neither pastors nor churches should ever set our confidence in our abilities and our training or our experiences or our mighty ministry machinery. We must express our dependence upon God's enabling grace through prayer. Without prayer, friends, ministry withers. Faith grows cold. Holiness declines. You may still be as busy as a bee, but life and prayer and fruitfulness begin to fade. It was uh, Peter Danica who once said, whatever opposes prayer opposes the whole work of ministry. Listen, if you let your prayer life become like a note tied to a carrier pigeon, guess what? You become a sitting duck. When it comes to God's word and to prayer, we must choose to neglect other things and make these first priorities first in our own lives. We pray because we're grace-dependent, not self-sufficient. I need God's grace in my life every single day. If you feel like you're, you're spiritually fading, if you feel like you're, you're spiritually struggling, if you feel like you're just running on empty, may I remind you humbly what James 4.2 says, you do not have because more than likely you don't ask. The health of the church is directly linked to our being devoted to Scripture, devoted to prayer, and thirdly, 
devoted to worship. Their devotion in Acts 4, or in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, led to verse 43, where it says, awe and awe came upon every soul. Now drop down to verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Those early church gatherings contained a wonderful spirit of joyful, reverential praise. I want you to notice the words that Luke uses to describe their hearts. He uses the word awe. He uses the word glad or gladness or joy. Those are, those are all linked to vibrant praise. There are times to rejoice with gladness, possibly with lots of instruments and celebration, extolling the worthiness of the Savior and the splendor of God's majesty. There are also times to just be still before the Lord in meditation and silence and contemplation, pondering the incredible power and glory and character of our God. This issue of worship is not a casual issue. It is a critical issue because all of ministry is directed by and driven by what we worship. Can I just say, worship is not about the instruments. I mean, we're quick to say that we worship in spirit and truth, and it's not about any of the external trappings, but then we get all worked up over certain instruments or whether you should or you shouldn't or, or whatever, and there's this sort of pointing of a finger to say, well, young people just want to, they just worship the instruments. I would argue that those who are opposed to the instruments are demonstrating a greater sense of worship for the instruments Stop talking about the instruments. Get your heart and mind elevated to the Savior. Let's put our focus on Him and worship Him from our hearts. Worship is not a casual issue. It is a critical issue. And it's critical because ministry is either shaped by our worship of God or ministry is shaped by our worship of, and I'll just say it, man. And that shows itself in any number of false idols, including ourselves, our systems, our personal preferences, or just plain bad practices. I would argue that that one of the strongest and most deceitful temptations that pastor will ever face in ministry is the temptation to self-glorification. There's simply nothing more potent than the praise of men which is why Mike Shea would often pray before preaching, Lord, hide me behind the shadow of the cross today. And I'm so thankful for that because I I find myself praying the same thing. Just to clear something up, the people in our churches, in whatever your respective ministry is, they did not decide to participate so that you and I feel better about ourselves or more secure in our abilities to lead. People don't share their problems with pastors so that pastors feel appreciated. People don't give money so that pastors can feel successful and bask in their own accomplishments. The people in our ministries do not have a pastor-shaped hole in their hearts that only you or I can fill. What the people around us need to see, what they need to sense from us is our own deep, great need. They they need to, to know that we need the gospel every day, that we They need to know that we are weak and He is strong. 
The truth is, as a pastor, my heart must be captivated with Christ. Hey, I cannot love my wife, my kids, or, and most certainly not my ministry because that's made up of people. I cannot love any of those people, any of them, including my own family, if I do not first and foremost have a vibrant, robust affection for my Savior. What the church needs, and they need to see it in their pastor, is, is to have hearts that are being cultivated, hearts that are being captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when the passion of my affection is burning and yearning for the one that loves me, when my desires become his desires, then I am motivated and I am absolutely confident. I am then in awe of my Lord and my God. Never let yourself become more concerned about the mechanics of ministry than you are about the presence and promises and provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, worship is all about recalibrating ourselves according to who God is, according to what Jesus has done, according to what the Scriptures clearly teach. David simply said it that worship is the lifter of my head. Worship is the living creatures around God's throne in Revelation 4 crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It is the 24 elders casting their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Perhaps you're familiar with a great definition of worship uh, written by William Temple. It goes like this. Worship is, and Temple writes, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open up the heart to the love of God, and to, vote, to devote the will to the purpose of God. What a great definition. See, the more we focus on God, the more we understand and appreciate how truly worthy He really is. And as we understand and appreciate the utter worthiness of who He is, of what He has done, we just cannot help but, but respond Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. We cannot help but have our hearts erupt. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Jesus did say, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So worship is having the proper internal response to truth, to all that we know God to be, to do, to say. It's all about knowing God better that prompts my heart and my soul to move forward, to move out, to, to, to lift my head, to humble my heart, and to offer God praise and worship as He so deserves. Now, I understand. We can't see Him. And in truth, we cannot catch a, a flight on Delta to the throne room of the universe. So how do we know the truth of who God is or what God is like or, or what God says? Well, we go back to the very first priority. 
the discipline of Scripture. We read God's Word, taking God at His Word, knowing that the Bible is God's Word in God's own words. See, worship involves our thinking about God and involves our having the proper internal response to all that we come to understand about God and know about God. It involves having a right spirit or attitude towards God. Worship is about feeding on the grace of God, delighting in the glory of God, being overwhelmed by the faithfulness of God and being motivated by the presence and promises of God. You know, it is true. We become like what we focus our attention on. And the more we worship God, the more we become, by His grace, like Him, like His Son. The early church was devoted to doctrine, devoted to prayer, and devoted to worshiping God. And all of that made this incredible difference. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The reality of their devotion to doctrine, to one another, to prayer, and to their Christ-exalting praise had an influence. It impacted other people. And because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel makes a difference. It makes a difference. You know, 2020 has forced our churches to be creative. Don't let that creativity and that, that forced ingenuity die off. Don't, it, it forced us to get out of our comfort zones. Don't throw away the opportunity to engage in the digital age. This whole year has forced us to see ourselves in a different light, to, to maybe realize that, that we have some things that we call priorities that are not God's priorities. That's okay. It's okay. You know, we've all said for years that the church is, is not the building. It's not the pews. It's not the organ. It's not the hymn books. The church is the people. We don't go to church. We are the church. Well, the world has changed seemingly overnight. Ministry models have changed. There has been a paradigm shift like nothing we have ever seen before. And I hate to be the bearer of what might, might come to you as bad news, but there is no going back. But here's the good news. God is still God. Jesus is still building His church. The gospel still saves all who will believe. The church is still under the great commission and the great commandment. And I say to our people here, can, can you even imagine what it would be like if the true testimony of the church of Jesus Christ was that Christians are more concerned about the Great Commission, more committed to the Great Commandment than, than they are about their personal comfort, about their personal preferences. Can you imagine what that testimony would be like? What would it be like if the local church was truly a place where people would come in broken, messed up, filthy, but they get right with God, they get right with their own heart, they get right with one another, and then they're able to get right with their neighbors and take the light of the gospel back out into the community. Friends, I am just as eager as anyone to get back to some sense of normal for our church. But don't make whatever you were doing in February the high standard for what is normal in your church. 
renew your commitment to make Scripture the standard for what is supposed to be the normal in your church. Be devoted to Scripture, not to your traditions. Be devoted to prayer, not to empty habits. Be devoted to worship, not personal preferences. Let me pray. Father, help us. Help us. Help us to stand firmly on the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. Help us to become mighty prayer warriors. Help our churches to have a spirit of awe and a a heart filled with gladness. Help our people to have a total renewed sense of praise and worship because you are worthy. Oh God, help us by your grace and the truth of your word to cast off every idol of self. Help us to totally recalibrate our hearts and our minds because of the truth of your word and the power of your grace through the presence of your spirit centering on Christ for the glory of your name. Help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.